You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Well, hey, everyone. Welcome back to Faith and Other Oddities. We're glad to be back. We're doing our, our studio thing. Um, we are actually taking a little break from Samuel. We're going to go into, what are we doing? We're Sa- doing Psalm 25? Very good. You remembered. <laughs> I remembered a number. <laughs> Which is quite the feat for either one of us. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I decided that we were going to go into this one because uh, there is one biblical scholar, not an overwhelming amount of biblical scholars who think that David wrote Psalms 25 after the events of Ziklag. And so we just got done with that where he had gone out and uh, had to recapture the citizens of the city because Mm -hmm. they had been taken by, was it the Ammonites? Uh, Yes. I've slept since we recorded last. The Amalekites? Amalekites. Amalekites. That's it. Yeah. Because that's going to be very important when we get into 1 Samuel 2. So uh, 1 Samuel 1. I can't even get my number straight today. So, um, second Samuel one, that's the one. Yes. So (laughs) the first chapter of the second book. Yeah. Yeah. That's the way it's going to go. But I thought we'd kind of take this little side route because it has been proposed that Psalms 25 has been written at this point or was written at this point. And, um, you know, we haven't done a Psalm in a while because David's been in the Philistine country, Mm -hmm. and he hasn't really been doing a whole lot of talking with God as far as evidenced by the scripture. I think David probably was always in some sort of communication with God, but we don't have any evidence of it or any record of it at this point. So the main scholar who proposes this is J.G. Baldwin. Now, she was, and it was a she, was a leading woman um, biblical scholar sometime between 1950 and 1970 is when she did the bulk of her work. Okay. And uh, she's the one who, who promotes this. She's a really interesting person. So if you look up uh, J.G. Baldwin, B-A-L-W-I-N, kind of read a little bit about her. Um, I, I think she's a lot of fun because, you know, there weren't a lot of women working in this area at that point in time. And so to have one, someone come forward as a kind of leading voice in biblical scholarship in those years is kind of impressive. Uh, now, like I said, she's one of the only ones I found who supports this view. Okay. And the reason for that is because Psalms 25 is an acrostic. So each verse begins with the letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And those are tending, tended to be thought of as teaching psalms, that they um, would, were there to help people remember certain truths. They weren't necessarily uh, psalms thought to be born out of a moment of need or passion or, you know, they weren't just something that, that it conveyed a spontaneous emotion. Mm-hmm. That, and you would think at Ziklag, when David comes back and he finds that everyone's been taken, that he would be writing a psalm along those lines and not so much something that you would have to think and kind of plan out and process through to give it this very rigid structure. Yeah. Now, you might know more about that as a songwriter. Uh, I mean, I always think of writing stuff like this where it's it's on like a, you have to follow the steps. Like, I'm really bad at things like haikus. Um, <laughs> we have to count and we've already established. There's, yeah, there's numbers involved, but... 
I mean, trying to write something for every letter of the alphabet, it might be, I mean, it's what, four letters easier in Hebrew. Um, <laughs> right. But the, I don't know, I, I, I don't, I've never seen it done really well, and it's usually just in educational stuff. <laughs> yeah, well, I think that's why why David's psalms are so phenomenal, is because he manages to follow a structure sometimes and still keep that momentum building. Yeah. He he yeah. doesn't get lost in the in the form. Yeah, well, and and of course, you know, the the form is kind of lost if you don't if you aren't seeing the Hebrew text of this. But uh, Third Day does a really good rendition of the first part of this. It's mm-hmm. pretty good. I, I dated the, now, but <laughs> well, no. The whole time I was working through this, I I kept hearing them in my in the back of my head. They were just like constantly playing, and so, uh, you know, and I do, I really do like it when modern. Uh, songwriters do try to redo the musical side of the songs because then you realize, oh, I learned a song, which is so easy to learn a song. And you, you actually have scripture in your head. Yeah. So, uh, you know, unfortunately, most of the time when a lot of people try this, it doesn't turn out so well, but there are some great examples of it when it does work, it works really well. But, um, the author of Samuel did note in the account of Ziklag, that David strengthens himself in the Lord. So we know that David is talking to God at that point. Mm-hmm. And um, now the, the traditional reading of this, according to the rabbis, is that David was busy studying Torah, which also seems like kind of a weird thing to do if your whole city has been decimated and your wife and kids have been carried off, that you would just stop and read the Bible instead of just taking off in hot pursuit. Right. And so... You know, I kind of have my doubts about both interpretations, but I think maybe there might be a deeper lesson here and the idea that when you are in those times of of trial and trauma, that the the right thing to do is to find comfort in the truth of God's word and in the truth of his nature as revealed in the word. And so um, that's kind of what this psalm is all about, which is why Baldwin decided that, yes, this is an appropriate response for the events of Ziklag, that David actually takes a moment to renew his faith and possibly even to help renew the faith of those around him by referring back to these events within the Torah in in the song. And we're going to find out how closely the psalm is connected to Torah. It's not just something David spontaneously arrived at and said, oh, I've got this brand new revelation about God, he is actually building on principles and ideas that have come before and been presented very clearly before. So I'm going to start off with verse one, to you, O Lord, I lift my soul. And I I want to stop right there because when we say the word soul, I think that's kind of an abstraction to most people. You think? I mean, how do we define what a soul is? it's It's an odd I mean, we accept it as part of our vocabulary, but how many people actually stop to think about what that is? Right. And so if you don't really know what it is, how do you lift your soul to the Lord? I mean, yeah, we can think about him, we can pray to him, but what does that actually mean? I I think it's a little easier sometimes if we kind of look at other alternative and equally valid translations. Okay. So the Hebrew here is nefesh, and so this can also be translated as life. So right. to you, O Lord, I lift my life. Right. Well, I, I, would, I would think there's a possibility, you know, because you know, we're not in the, the days of the esoteric, you know, the, <laughs> the soul and body uh, 
dichotomy. Right. You know, God, I'm putting my life in your hands, basically, I think is what one of the ways I could see this. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's where you're going with it. Yeah, well, and, and when you think back, it, the story we just got back from, David, his, his men had said, we want to kill you. We want to stone you. So this is not just an abstraction for David. If he is writing at this point in time, this is a very real, concrete thing he's doing. Yep. I, I need protection. I, I need someone to watch out after me because my literal, physical being is in trouble. Now, is David's soul in trouble? It could be. I mean, when we face calamity and trauma, one of the first things we tend to do if we aren't careful is to walk away from our faith and say our faith has Mm -hmm. failed us. So it works out on both levels, whether we want to go with the grand abstraction of soul or we want want to bring it back down to something a little bit more tangible, it still works. And that's the beauty of poetry and the beauty of songs is they often work at multiple levels. Right. And so neither one has to exclude the other. So verse two, um, oh my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exalt over me. Now, this theme of being put to shame is one that's repeated in so many of David's Psalms. And I think it's really interesting that this illustrious king, the king who ushered in the golden era of Israel, is so concerned with shame and being put to shame. And you can see this, uh, Psalms 31.1, or Psalms 31.17, Psalms 69.6, Psalms 71.1, Psalms 119.31, and pretty much all throughout Psalms 119, very similar wording, if not identical in all of those, this idea of, do not let me be put to shame. And David elaborates about why not being put to shame is important. Uh, notice in Psalm 37, 18, the Lord knows the days of the blameless and their heritage will never uh, will remain forever. They are not put to shame in evil times. In the days of famine, they have abundance. So if you read through the Psalms and you start looking at all those verses I, I listed off, you're going to find that shame is kind of an elemental part of warfare. Mm-hmm. And so, and, and it's not just warfare and spiritual warfare like we think of today i think a lot of christians when you talk about warfare they want to jump right to that spiritual warfare right. which i'm not negating that is absolutely 100 percent part of our reality as believers but in david's time the this spiritual warfare was being carried out in the physical realm the these battles that he was fighting very much are, are real battles they they aren't some esoteric kind of idea and they are the beginning of the battle that we engage in today. Right. So when enemies are defeated in war at this time, they're put to shame. And we're going to see that very clearly with Saul's death and what happens with his body in the next chapter of First Samuel. So the idea of shaming your en- enemy, and we can go back, uh, if we want to look at a previous example, Samson in the Temple of Dagon that he was put in there blinded and supposed to dance and made to uh, entertain the enemy. So uh, one becomes an enemy of God um, in the idea of... I think I skipped it. You skipped it? I don't know. Uh, Well, no, the idea of being an enemy. So who who is an enemy? And I don't know why I didn't make a nice transition for myself, but I didn't. So... Hey, you know... Whatever. So, but the, the enemy of being put to God. It's our show. We can do what we want, right? We'll make up the rules as we go along, and then we'll change them as we see fit. That's basically <laughs> podcasting. Pretty much. 
but I, I, I want to look at, you know, what does it mean to be an enemy of God? And in, in David's mind, he kind of, um, he presents us with some, some principles. He doesn't use these words, but I think we can all see these ideas encapsulated in David's teaching. One is failing to observe God's decree. So if you aren't doing what God told you to do, if you're breaking the Torah, you're breaking the law, then you are not operating in harmony. You aren't in concert with God's demands on you as a person. You are actually showing rebellion towards God. So that makes you an enemy. Right. So, you know, pretty simple. Uh, another thing that makes you an enemy of God is attacking those God loves. So if you attack someone that God has said is important, if you said, you know, attack someone that God has said, I'm going to honor, like God's anointed, where mm-hmm. David refuses to touch Saul so many, you know, twice at least, right? you know, that's, that's becoming an enemy of God. So you need to honor and value those that God loves. And, you know, the, this is Jesus with the Good Samaritan. This is Jesus with love your enemy, uh, mm-hmm. love, your, yeah, love your enemy, love your neighbor. Mm-hmm. These commands, because why? We're all important to God. Now, the final way to become an enemy to God, and I think this is the one that we're probably most guilty of today, and I know I've been guilty of it in my life, is neglecting to care for those that God loves. So if we aren't taking care of our neighbor, we aren't being that good Samaritan, helping the person in the roadside ditch, trying to you know, struggle out and because they've been wounded, now we've become God's enemy. It, it's not just this idea of actively attacking God, which yes, you can do that, but there's also this idea of actively failing to do what we should do for someone created in God's image. Right. And I, you know, I have to watch that because... I, it's so easy to pass by somebody, uh, you know, it's a go-to example, and I think everybody uses it, but it, it's something I think we all know, it, you know, the, the cashier at the uh, checkout, mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. so easy just to say, oh, well, you know, they're just here to do a job, and they need to serve me, and they need to do what I want them to do, and if they don't do it the way I want them to do, or as fast as I want them to do it, then I can be rude to them. Right. And that's actually moving you into that sphere of being an enemy of God. And I think if we start thinking these th- along these lines, now we're going to start changing the way we behave. And I think that's something David grasped because we do see it within the Psalms very, very often. But to be put to shame in David's vocabulary is to be exposed as an enemy of God, as someone who has betrayed God. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So he doesn't want that. Now, can you imagine if we were all brave enough to say, I don't want to be exposed as an enemy of God, that that would be shameful for me, instead of saying, well, I've got my rights, I've demanded my rights, and I needed to defend my <laughs> rights. And, and, you know, we celebrate those kinds of thoughts in our culture today. But to actually be humble and caring for everyone, we, we think that of that as a sign of weakness. Right. Right. So this is a total reversal, and it's also a total reversal of how Saul has been conducting his reign. And we're seeing, starting to see the contrast once again of David and Saul. Mm-hmm. And man, it, it just, at the end of Saul's life, it really comes out. And I'm so excited to get to 2 Samuel because I've literally been spending weeks putting that together. But, um, you know, this, is, this idea of not being put to shame is particularly true in David's case. Uh, you know, he's been anointed king of Israel. He's supposed to displace Saul. And this is the guy that, that Samuel had just told Saul, you know, with the witch of Endor, which we spent so much time on. Mm-hmm. Samuel had said, you're now God's enemy. 
And so we kind of get a little more background and insight into what Samuel was saying to Saul. If David's saying being an enemy of God, or, you know, is you living according to these three things, failing to observe the decrees, attacking those God loves, or neglecting those uh, God loves, now, now we're seeing how Saul has embodied this idea that he has been an enemy of God. And so the fact that Samuel reveals him as such is shameful, and David does not want this to be his fate. So David has to validate his claim to the throne in the eyes of the people. Yeah. I mean, sure, he, he's been anointed king, but big whoop. Uh, Samuel did that at home with his brothers. Who's going to believe the testimony of this guy's brothers when it's going to benefit them? So now David is going to have to validate his claim. And one of the ways he's going to validate it is through success. And why is he a success? Because he's a friend of God. So you see how all these kind of concepts start to come together within David's words. And you, you kind of have to have this, um, this background and the idea of what a military defeat meant mm-hmm. in this day and age, because a military defeat is you've abandoned, you've been abandoned by God, or you've been rejected by God, which is exactly what's going to happen to Saul in the next chapter of Samuel. And so if David cannot win, and you know, this idea that he's getting ready to go after the Melkites, if he can't win the families back, the people have been taken by them, then his claim to the throne would be viewed as baseless. Mm. So Everything David's getting ready to dare by going out after the Amalekites is rooted in God's promise to him and hoping that the people are going to, to join him in this battle because they believe that this promise that has been made to him is actually true. And the fact that people would actually join him in this is not just saying that they trust in David, but they trust that God has chosen David. So I did want to point out that, um, you know, whether or not this was written during the time of Ziklag's destruction, this is really true of David's whole life. Sure. You know, we, we see this over and over again, where David's claim to the throne is validated by how daring he is. And it starts right at that moment with Goliath, mm-hmm. and it continues throughout. But we should also hold these ideas that David's presenting intention, because there, there's so many times when we want to say that success, any success, is the result of obedience to God. And then we somehow take that one step or three steps further mm-hmm. that says obedience to God automatically results in blessing. It automatically results in success. And we, we should be ready and prepared to receive the success if we're being obedient. And so it's a good idea when we read these things to remember that there's other parts in the Bible, like the story of Job, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that tell us God doesn't operate like this. Right. There, the, this quid pro quo or this manipulation is not part of um, a way we control God. And, and David's not suggesting this. He's not trying to blackmail God into submission or helping him. David is remembering that most of the time, God is faithful to those who are faithful to him. Mm-hmm. Now, there are times in God's sovereignty where he says, 
you know, for right now, you're just going to have to trust me through a hard time and you're just going to have to keep believing while things go all to pieces. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't negate the fact I'm God. It doesn't negate the fact that I love you. You just need to believe. Now, because it would be very easy to say, well, the fact that Ziklag was attacked is a sign that David had somehow been disobedient, that he had somehow neglected God and God's decrees, and this is why he deserved to have his city attacked. Right. And, and that's exactly how the men were interpreting it, because the men saw this, this defeat and the fact their families have been carried off as evidence that David wasn't the rightful king and he should not be trusted as the king. Mm-hmm. So David has to redeem himself in the eyes of the people. Well, how does he do this? Is It's during those times of hardship and questioning and, and all of the, the emotional turmoil of these moments that David continues to trust and believe and move forward, despite the fact he doesn't look very blessed right now. He doesn't look like he's being treated like a friend of God right, right. now. And so, you know, and that's one of the beautiful things about Job's story is Job has to, to stand there and continually defend his innocence and say, I didn't do anything wrong. And it's even more clear in Job's story, he didn't do anything wrong. Where David, you know, he's living in the land of the Philistines. Mm-hmm. He mm-hmm. was trying to join the king of the Philistines to attack Israel. We don't really know what's going on with him in this moment. Where Job, we get this clear cut example of someone who is righteous that God says, you know, just hang on for the ride. Keep, keep trusting, keep believing. And even when things look like they're the absolute worst, I'm still going to show that I am in control of things. And that's all you need to worry about. Right. So I am sovereign. It's okay. (laughs) So verse three, indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be, they shall be ashamed who are uh, waiting who want only treacherous, uh, sorry. Who are wantonly treacherous. Wantonly, ah, that's better. I don't even know how to read my own handwriting. But it's we a good just... thing I read ahead there. Yeah, me too. <laughs> wantonly treacherous. So none of, yeah, so none who wait on you are going to be put to shame. So he begins by voicing his fear that he would be put to shame and his, his enemies would exalt over him. That was the previous verse. But he doesn't phrase it as a request not to happen. He's just acknowledging this is my emotions. But now in this verse, he's asserting this truth with no equivocation. Uh, None who wait on God will be put to shame. He's actively reminding himself of the truth of God's word. And he's consciously holding on to the promise and character of God. And this is how we strengthen ourselves. It's remembering who God is. The problem is... Most of us want to say, in this moment, can I see God's promises fulfilled? Right. And if you look back, I, several years ago, a friend of mine and I were talking, and I had some stuff in my life that I was waiting to happen and was praying and kind of, you know, just grumbling about the state of affairs in the world in general. And she's like, but Emily, you got to have faith. And she pointed me to Hebrews 11, you know, the hall of faith, and she's telling me, you know, all of these people had faith. They had this promise and, and, you know, they got to see this promise. I'm like, no, they all died. Right. You know, before the promise was fulfilled, they're all dead. And I, I think it kind of behooves us to, to have this eternal perspective. Yeah. Yeah. Because at any point in time, any given point in time, if you look at the circumstances of our physical reality, it doesn't look like God's doing so well in this great battle. Mm-hmm. So, 
you know, David is saying, hey, I can't hang on to these truths. And, and he's not doing it with the, this Pollyanna kind of denial. Does anybody know who Pollyanna is these days? It's become a phrase. I mean, <laughs> yeah, she, I know, I know that I, I, I don't even know if I've, I, I remember, wasn't there a movie of it mm-hmm. that y'all used to watch? I, I'd never really paid that close attention to it. No, it was a girl movie. Well, it was, yeah, I mean, it was. Old Disney. I was into superheroes and stuff, and there was none of that in the movies that mom liked to watch with you and the. Absolutely none. So, anyway. <laughs> Moving on. But, yeah, I mean, it was, but, you know, I think sometimes uh, as Christians, we're kind of told that if we're feeling doubt or we're feeling worried about the outcome of something that we just kind of need to act like we don't feel it, you know, just, just push it down and just, you know, God is good all the time. Uh, And there's no room for this kind of fear that something bad might happen or, you know, the the anxiety that something Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. bad might happen. And, you know, that's called lying to yourself. Right. And, And that's one of the things I think David is so good about is he acknowledges, hey, I am worried about how this is going to play out. Yeah. Well, it's like, um, it's like I, th- I think you've used it before, but it's the doctor analogy. You know, if you go to the doctor and they're like, so how are things going? And you just tell them nothing that's going on, then how can they treat things? And, you know, how, you know, that's one yeah. of the ways that you can kind of look at it. <laughs> I have such a story for you later, but uh, this is, yeah, and that's the thing. If we, if we are not telling the truth, then how, how do we deal with this? And, you know, and the other thing is what I think a lot of us don't realize is when we're not telling the truth to ourselves, we're also saying God can't be trusted with the truth. And so for God to be trusted with the truth of, hey, this is my emotional state in this moment, I, that's a huge honor. There's not a lot of people I let in to how I'm doing all the time, right? you know, to, to say, you know, I'm terrified of this happening, or I, I feel really sad about that. And I'm not going to use specific examples because I don't tell everybody things that are going on within me, uh, only those that I, I trust. And it, we've got to be able to trust God at that level. Mm-hmm. And not try to protect him from our feelings. And, you know, think about how arrogant that really is to think that God needs to be protected from our feelings. <laughs> and I, I don't know how many people I've talked to who have been told over and over again by the church, well, you've just got a bad attitude, you're in rebellion. And, and they've been told that this is the wrong way to approach God. And yet here I'm seeing David going, hey, this is how I feel. Matter of fact, I was listening to... Um, the commentarians with Joe and Tim Stedman, yeah, uh, yeah. Noah. It's a good conversation. It was a good conversation. I, and so I got to listen to them on the way here. And um, the, what were they saying? They were saying something, and I, I totally I had to jump tracks to remember their name. But the idea of, uh, I've lost it. Uh, you're talking about protecting God from your feelings, things like that. I. I'm not sure exactly which part you're trying to reference. Yeah, I can't. Okay, so just listen to the commentary. Yeah, it's a a good show. Speaking of other shows, this is kind of funny. I listened to to Luke's latest episode of uh, Change My Mind, and he he lovingly, I assume, hopefully lovingly, (laughs) um, described the commentarians as mystery science theater without the jokes. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I've got, I'll listen to Luke's, uh, 
podcast on the way home. It, uh, this last episode was really good. Of course, yeah, he was talking to a guy who does uh, graphic novels and comic book art. So I'm always interested oh, in yeah. people who do comic book art. So it it, it impresses good. me, anyone who can... Um, who can do that kind of work on demand. And so I draw, yeah. but it has to be just what's happening in the moment. And so yeah, go check out that episode. It, it's really good. He, uh, the, the episode is uh, the guy's talking about, he was kind of raised in church, changed his mind, decided to become an atheist and then changed his mind again. So um, it's a good story. And uh, he's actually, he's just released a two part. I believe it's a two part graphic well he's released the first part i think the second part's due next year sometime uh graphic novel about this about his life and his Ooh. his journey through this so um i i don't know that i've ever read a graphic novel that's based on real life events right so it's kind of a a different thing but luke said it's one of the best things he's read all year so nice. that's that's pretty good endorsement yeah so yeah check those out cuz um both luke's uh podcast and joe's the commentarian those are Raven Creek. Mm-hmm. Those are our friends, and we just like support what they're doing. And so, uh, it's really worth uh, you know kind of seeing what other people are doing and how they're taking this medium of podcasting to explore different different aspects of our faith in life. So, um, anyway, but back to Psalm twenty five, uh, I, and I can't remember what I was going to say about that other than just you know. We, we don't have to defend God from our emotions. We really don't. We can, we can be real with him. So verse four, make me know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me to, in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you, I wait all day long. And this is one of our, our stronger ties back to 1 Samuel 30. And the, you know, the men had grumbled. They said they were going to take David's life because the uh, Amalekites had taken their families. But David is connecting this back to Moses. So in verse four, he is actually directly commenting, I'm sorry, directly quoting Moses in the speech he gives right after the uh, golden calf incident. You can find this in Exodus 33, 13. He says, now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this, that this nation is your people. So David and, and Moses both had already witnessed God's goodness and faithfulness. And when they, they prayed these prayers, this isn't a time where they are coming at this brand new. They've had reason to, to think back on the events of their life and, and to draw strength from the times that, that God has protected and defended them before. And now when they're praying, both David and Moses, they're praying in the face of a rebellious people. Mm-hmm. people who want to take their lives and people who are kind of questioning whether they've chosen the right leadership. You know, Moses had brought the Israelites out of, Ex- out of Egypt and they're in the desert. They, but before this, they had witnessed the 10 plagues. They had crossed through the Red Sea. Right. You know, Sinai is glowing and rumbling with the presence of God. There's no reason for them to doubt that God is with them. And, Yet when Moses is gone just a little too long, and we talked about this when we, uh, Psalms 32, I believe, when, when Moses is gone just a little bit too long, now they, they, they just go crazy. They lose their mm-hmm. minds. It's mm-hmm. like, let's build a golden calf. And one day we're going to have to talk about the golden calf incident in detail. But the idea that 
as soon as things are not as simple as they hoped, they lose faith. And, and this is the big thing that, that separates leadership in Israel apart from those who are just kind of part of the masses. The masses say, oh, something goes wrong. We don't know if we can trust God. Right. Leadership says, hey, things are going wrong, but I'm going to trust God anyway. So that right there kind of just knocks the whole idea that if you're good and obedient and faithful, then God's constantly going to bless you because you can't have an opportunity to show you our leadership unless you face hardship. Right. So um, David here, it, it, he's facing a similar situation because now Ziklag has been, been over, um, overthrown. And, you know, the people are, are freaking out. But you got to remember, just like Israel had been, you know, successful as far as freeing themselves of Egyptian oppression, this is a group of people who had freed themselves from the danger of Saul. Mm-hmm. And remember, Saul kind of mirrors Pharaoh in a lot of this, this time uh, in 1 Samuel. And so they, they actually stop and do something that's completely unexpected in this point in time. Because typically at this point in time, you know, they would act like Pharaoh and hear me and obey or I'm going to kill you. That would have been a leader's response. Mm -hmm. They actually ask God, both Moses and David, ask God for greater revelation and be taught and ask to be taught how to be like God and how to follow in God's ways in this point where it looks like they're going to be overthrown. And so if you continue to read Moses' story, Exodus 33, 15, for how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not your is it not in your glory with us? Sorry, is it not in your going with us, so that we are a dis, are distinct? I, your people, from the every other people on the face of the earth. So if you're not with us, then what's the point? What's the point? So I need to know as a leader, I need to know how to embody you as God, because I'm supposed to represent you as God, as a king or as a leader to the people. And because this is the function of a king, is they are the human representation of a deity. Mm-hmm. And all of ancient Near Eastern culture got this. And David and Moses, instead of falling for that trap, and you know, we can open up a whole can of worms <laughs> here, but you know, I have been in churches that are on the edge of a split. And how many times does leadership stand up and say, if you're going to be a part of my church, you're going to do what I tell you to do. You're going to listen to what I have oh, to yeah. say. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, I've, I've seen that happen to a lot of churches where if, if you're not doing what I say, then you're not listening to the Lord. I yeah. Mean, you start getting in that territory. If, if you're in a church like that, just leave. <laughs> just find a new church. Find some place where they are. That, that's not a healthy attitude. I mean... I mean, or, or get, you know, or call the pastor out on it. If he repents of it and things get better, awesome. But there's this power play. It, there, there's not, yeah, that's not how churches are supposed to be set up. Well, and this is what David and Moses illustrate. When there's a point when the people are on the edge of rebellion, you don't go down and start screaming and throwing a fit and trying to play this dictator. That's what Pharaoh did. Mm-hmm. Instead, David and Moses go to God and say, we need to know what it is to truly represent you in this moment. Mm -hmm. And what a different question that is than what we might be tempted to ask, because the temptation might be to ask, how do I control these people? Right, right. And that's not what they're asking. Also, 
Hey, you know, and also bear in mind that, you know, even if that was the response of David and Moses, your pastor is not David or Moses. <laughs> um, so, you know, just weigh things very carefully. And, you know, it's probably a bit of a knee-jerk reaction for me to just say, just leave <laughs> earlier. I, I, I do want to dial that back a little bit, you know, work, work through the process, but understand right. that, you know, there, there are things to watch out for that, are, you know, mark an unhealthy church. Um, okay, so I, I had actually, like, just a few minutes before um, we started to record, somebody had responded to something I'd said on Facebook. I'd, I heard the story on Facebook. The, the person who was involved in it, it's a private group, so I'm not going to give any names. They um, told the story, and I actually had to ask. I will, you know, I told them, I said, I will trust you if you tell me this is true. I said, but there's a part of me that wants to think you're making some kind of hyperbolic statement on this day of affairs mm-hmm. because I cannot imagine, but th- she was in a church where the moms who were on uh, food stamps were supposed to bring their, their cards to the pastor's wife so she could spend the first 10% of what they received on food stamps. So there are, a lo- that was exactly my, <laughs> for those of you, who not watching on YouTube, <laughs> you, you didn't see the face I made. He I, about that... broke his eyeballs. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So there are a lot of people who are using the title Christian Ugh. and the title church to, to validate and vindicate horrible behavior. Number one, that's illegal. Right. That, <laughs> you that's, know? Yeah. That, that's my first thought is that is absurd because number yeah, it's, it's illegal and it's immoral. Mm-hmm. I mean. Yeah. Oh and. Because the, if you actually read your Bible, you're supposed to tithe on, on return on investment. You're supposed to tithe on, on profit. On increase. On increase, yes, on, on your mm-hmm. profit. Uh, if for your labor or for your business or your farm or whatever you have, mm-hmm. if you're on food stamps, <laughs> right? It, that's not part of your labor increase. Right. So, I mean, yeah, let alone the fact that it's illegal. I mean, it's it's not totally biblical. not even taking into account scripture, and of or course, what about taking care of the widow and the taking <laughs> care? <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. And the there's a lot to be said, and and of course, you know, I I kind of you know I think as Christians we should be giving, and I think mm-hmm. tithing to the church is a, is a great thing, mm-hmm. but let's also keep in mind there's there's not a New Testament mandate for it. Yeah. If you really break it down, and I know mm-hmm. that's a controversial right. opinion, people don't like it, but I I am I'm yet to be convinced that there is a mandate in the New Testament right. for the tithe, but I do also think we should be more than happy to give at least that much and above and beyond. Mm-hmm. So, that's I totally didn't expect to get into that <laughs> conversation, and that is, you know, that's something that again that's just where I am. I, I'm happy to be convinced otherwise mm-hmm. on that. Go for it. I, you know, I, I'm glad to have the conversation. It's... Well, you know, I, and I think true believers, um, we, we should not feel like, oh, okay, I, I counted everything out and I, I've made sure I've done all my fractions correctly and here's my tithe and I'm done. Yeah. And I think that's where a lot of people have used the, the principle of tithing, which we find in the Old Testament, but again, no New Testament mandate. But the principle of tithing abused. And instead of going, 
you know, I just want to give. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. if you actually go back to to Moses in the tabernacle, whenever they were building it, he had to tell the people to stop giving. Right. We've right. got too much. And so this idea that that we as Christians actually just, we give because God says, hey, it's a good thing. And I, you, you can bless someone. You can be like me in this moment mm-hmm. by helping provide for someone. And we should want to imitate that that part of our father's character and i it, it's not oh god's saying well you only deserve this much if god only gave us what we deserved i mean we can have this whole conversation about that which we don't deserve anything so yeah. of course my other thought you know is if i i don't know i probably shouldn't <laughs> say well we should move on i'll tell, uh, remind me to tell you that okay so <laughs> but but i you know i i just what i love about david and moses in this moment is it's so counterintuitive to what we see in Pharaoh, but also to what a lot of us have experienced in church. Mm-hmm. And, and so we really see that these two guys who are two of the biggest leaders in, in Israel's history, this is the example that they give us. And so maybe we need to be paying a little bit more attention uh, to that. And so... Uh, and, and David further connects himself to Moses. You know, in verse five, he says, you are my salvation or deliverer is another uh, legitimate uh, translation there. Exodus is the biggest deliverance we find in the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. So we have this very deliberate link. So verse six, remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been of old. Now let's read Exodus 34, six. The Lord, the Lord... Uh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. So David's, again, he's, he's using this phrasing that Moses has, has used. Yeah, and I, I do like the JPS rendering of that verse a little bit better. Okay. I mean, we can kind of get an idea of what they are of old means. Right. right? You know, it's kind, of a, it's kind of an antiquated way of saying things. But in, in the JPS, it just says, your faith, uh, sh- uh, Lord, be mindful of your compassion and your faithfulness. They are as old as time. Oh, that's good. I love that. That that to me, that's that's a more vivid picture. Yeah. Uh, for the modern reader, it's got that wonderful imagery to it. That, yeah, yeah. And and I, but I, what I love about it is David is using this this rhetorical device, in which he asks God to remember who he is. You know, God, remember who you are, because it's not dependent on anything I am Mm -hmm. or what I do. It really is about who you are as God. And so, uh, you know, does God need to remember? No, God doesn't need to remember who he is. He doesn't accidentally forget. You know, this isn't some, you know, low grade uh, amnesia he's got going on. But David needs to remember at this moment. And that's part of strengthening yourself in the Lord. Can you remember? Can you pull those things back to the forefront of your mind and concentrate on them? And it really contrasts nicely with verse 7. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgression. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. So forget who I am. I'm a screw-up. I'm a nobody. I admit it freely, but I need you to remember who you are. Let's not talk about what I've done. (laughs) Let's talk about what you do. <laughs> yeah. And, and notice that there's the other contrast. God's steadfast love has been around, how the JPS put it, from... Uh, they're as old as time. As, as old as time. As old as time, yeah. David's sins, they're from his youth. 
So, right. you know, there, there's this, this old and young connection. So, you know, David's sins really are nothing compared to God's steadfast love. Yeah. And, and so there's a really good um, comparison and contrast there. And, you know, Moses had called on God to remember Abraham, Isaac, and, and Israel. That's in verse uh, Exodus 32, 13, after the golden calf ex- uh, incident. Mm-hmm. And, you know, these were old promises to a very young nation. And because Israel really wasn't coalescing very well as a nation at this point, but they were starting to find their own identity apart from Egypt and apart from the Canaanites. And it only happens in the Exodus. So um, you remember for the sake of your goodness. And, and that's a huge statement there from Moses. But the interesting part is the only time goodness or good is mentioned in Exodus is in Exodus 33, 19. I will make my goodness pass before you and proclaim before you my name, the Lord. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. So this is when God is talking to Moses. Moses has asked to see God face to face, and God's like, well, we can't quite go there, but but I can show you my goodness when you hide the the rock and I cover yeah. you, so well, I, and, and I do th- I, the the wording on the JPS is so very different in this. They and, aren't quite as as literal as the ESV. Yeah, well, mm-hmm. it's, but I think they get the concepts better. Well, and, sometimes. I well, I don't know necessarily on that, but it, <laughs> it's it's uh, do not be mindful of my youthful sins and transgressions in keeping with your faithfulness. Consider what is in my favor as it befits your goodness. And so it's. It's so weird. I mean, it's like David saying, don't treat me like me. Treat me like you. <laughs> right? I mean, which, which is basically an image of what we get uh, through, through uh, salvation with Christ. Mm-hmm. But I just think it's against that, the, the chutzpah, the, the very brazen like uh, way of saying these things. And I guess, I mean, if, I mean, I guess if you're familiar enough with the stories of the patriarchs and mm-hmm. how much they screwed up, Basically, you see God (laughs) having this record of treating people like he would treat himself. I mean, which is in the character of God when you Mm -hmm. see that. I mean, it's, but to to go, hey, this is, this is what you've done in the past. And it really is, it, it just, it seems very, very brazen, you know, to put himself on that same level it, it is. In the past. It, it is brazen, but when you realize the people in the past, the only reason they were treated that way is because of who God is, right? And, and God right. doesn't change. And, and I think this is what I, what I love about this, is this imagery is so counter to what we've been taught about God, especially the God of the Old Testament. The God of the Old Testament, you know, he's vengeful and angry, and he can't wait to kill everyone. And Here's, well, some people think that's the God of the New Testament. <laughs> True. Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> but particularly the God of the Old Testament. I mean, I, we, which is the God of the New Testament. Let me clarify yeah, that. Yeah, there's no change. Clarify, it's, the, it, it's the same God, but I, I feel like there's kind of a, a big smear campaign on, on yeah, Yahweh. There really is. And so, and here's David saying, imagine. yeah, and, and here's David saying, wait a minute. I can trust you because you are good. And if this was written during that time at Ziklag, can you imagine what a statement of faith this is? But I mean, we can pick any incident out of David's life. I mean, he's always on the verge of being destroyed. Mm-hmm. 
And so, you know, and sometimes that destruction is, um, you know, enemies coming against him. And sometimes that's because he's just an idiot. And we're going to get more into him being an idiot. When we get into Second Samuel. Samuel. Yeah. Uh, So anyway, verse uh, 8 through 10. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs the sinner in his way. He leads the humble in what is right. He teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast our steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. So all the themes from the previous verses are being brought together. Uh, the goodness, the ways, the teachings, the path, the steadfast love, faithfulness, all mentioned again. So God is not merely a, a military champion. He is a teacher. And, and notice who God's teaching. And I, I love this little note. God is teaching the sinner. And it's the sinful, depending on your, your translation there. And, but it's the humble. So th- when you look at the parallelism, because you got to look at the way the Hebrews constructed. So the sinful learn the way, the humble learn the way. And so the two are equated with each other. So the humble sinner, the person who says, hey, I'm a big mess and I need you to help me. Mm-hmm. This is the one God is willing to help. And the idea that you can be a sinner and humble is absolutely presented in scripture because I have seen a lot of talk on Facebook from great religious folks who says, oh, if you're a <laughs> sinner, uh, you cannot be humble. You're just proud and arrogant. David's saying the exact opposite right here. And, you know, David's going to present other paradoxes about life and faith. And, and David is really good about hanging on to these paradoxical truths. So um, verse 11. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. So his, you know, David's guilt is great, and he's not denying it. This is David's one thing that he always has in his favor. Uh, verse 12. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him he will instruct. Him is God there. Him he will instruct in the way that he should choose. He, his soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. So namesake. Remember back in Exodus 33, when God said, I will proclaim my name, the Lord, I'm going to give you that Yahweh, that intimate personal name, mm-hmm. which nobody else has. He, David contrasts God's greatness to forgive with man's great capacity to sin. So you've got that, that play again. They're going to inherit the land. Well, what's the story of the Exodus about? It's about going into the promised land, that the children reclaimed the land that God had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their descendants. And David is actually going to to claim the land where Saul is going to lose it. He's going to be taken from it. David is actually going to reclaim it. But at this point, we need to remember he's still with the Philistines. Right. So for David to say this is, is a great testament to his faith. So verse 14. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. Now, the, this word for, for friendship, uh, it's more the idea of a secret counsel. Uh, this is an intimate gathering of friends discussing over what's going to take place. Does the... I was going to say, yeah, it says that in this ESV here. Uh, there's a footnote here in the ESV. I was going to check it here and see what it says on this. What, what was it, 14? Uh-huh. Yeah, the counsel of the Lord. And then... In, in the JPS, there's a footnote on that that says secret. <laughs> so, yes. <laughs> so this idea of you don't find this place of, of intimate relationship unless you've experienced this forgiveness of God and you, you've walked in relationship from him. And so even though we don't have this word in Exodus 33, 
we do have the same idea in Exodus uh, 33, 11, where it says, as a man speaks to his friend. So when Moses is being spoken to by God, so yep. we, we have this continuation of that. And right after this, uh, Exodus 33, in Exodus 34, we have the covenant remo- uh, renewed. But it's only after a protracted exchange between God and Moses where these friends decide the fate of Israel together, which is really crazy when you think about it, because we're never really taught in a lot of um, church uh, Sunday school lessons that God is actually asking human beings to have some input on what he decides. And if you ever go back and read it, Exodus 33, Moses is arguing for the protection and preservation of Israel. That's, mm-hmm. that's his whole point in that passage. And because God was done, he, he was ready to, to knock them out, uh, wipe them out, uh, whatever. And they were out of the equation. However way, many times you want to play on the word out. Anyway, <laughs> verse 15, my eyes are ever toward the Lord for he will pluck my feet out of the net. So David reaffirms that, that God is the one who's going to save him, but only if David is seeking God and he has no reason to fear. Again, he, he, he's, he's strengthening himself. Verse 16, turn to me and be gracious to me for I'm lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. So, what I love about this is that it flies in the face of almost every Christian self-help book out there on the shelves. Uh, he isn't talking about how good he is. Right. He isn't talking about how blessed he is or how deserving he is. Instead, he, he's just laying it all out there. Um, you know, I'm messed up and I have no hope aside from you. And I think so often, you know, we've been told that, you know, you just need to, to talk about how great you are. Now, there's, there's a place for remembering that you are beloved by God, that you're valued and treasured by God. But if that's where you just like to hang out, maybe you need to kind of dip your toes in this pool for a little bit and recognize how, how much you do rely on his forgiveness and love. Mm-hmm. And if you hang out over in the pool where you're just, oh, woe is me, I'm such a wretched, horrible creature that God can never love me, then you need to visit some of those verses that talk about how loved and valued God <laughs> you are by God. Right. Because there's that tension. And I think it's funny, so often when I talk to people, the people who need that affirmation and need to be encouraged to trust God's love and how much he values them are the ones who will never accept that message about themselves. And the ones who, who um, need to, to hear that are, are the ones who are, are the first to, to push it away. But the ones who don't need to hear it, the ones who need to remember some humility, are, are the ones who are constantly, see, this is what God says about me. Right. And so, you know, find that balance. Uh, find the tension in the paradox there. But um, he, he's grieving for the fact that he's alone. And he, he has... Um, been afflicted. And this, this word that has this connotation of being um, poor and needy, you know, he didn't lose sight of um, who, his, who he is or what his role is in Israel, but he, he's constantly examining himself and he recognizes that he's the leader and he has obligations as leader and he has a certain level of, of respect and uh, you know, I don't know what the right word for, you know, prestige as the leader, but he never loses sight of, of that need mm-hmm. for being real about his own failings. Right. So verse 19, consider how many of my foes are with, um, 
are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. O guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness uh, preserve me for I wait for you. So we've circled all the way back around to the beginning of the psalm. And we've made this, this journey where David has affirmed God's goodness and mercy, and he's voiced his own doubts in the middle of this. Um, you know, there, there's no varnishing the truth here. But he always returns back to the character and the, the integrity of God, because that's where his hope is found. It's not in anything he's done. It is about the character of God. And I think so often we don't pay enough attention to the character of God, to really just hang on to that truth and, and to ground ourselves there in a way that it has an impact on how we live. Right. And it's like, oh yeah, God is good. God is great. And, and then we go on and, you know, we need to go back and read those stories of the patriarchs, go back and, and read the stories of great saints and, you know, great believers through the, through the ages and see how God has been present in their lives. And you or Go back and think of your own life where, where God has shown up in crazy, unexpected ways. Because if you're a believer and you've been walking with him very long, I can almost guarantee you there are things that have happened in your life that if you really got honest about it, you would know it's only God's intervention that <laughs> saved right. you. And, but, you know, we forget that because we reason it away or we, we just kind of, you know, life happens and, and we move on. And David is saying, you know, I have to stop and think about not only what I've done, but I've got to think about what God's done. You know, Revelation, uh, I always forget the reference because, again, numbers. Uh, can't hang on to those. You know, the, the enemy is overcome by the blood of the lamb and the testimony of the saints. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. testimony is just a fancy word for our story. So we need to be thinking about our story and we need to be telling our story and we need to be looking at the stories of others because this is one of the, the two elements that overcome the enemy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, it, there's encouragement and hope in the story. So the last verse, verse 22, redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. Now, the word here for um, distress is, oh, I got a um, note out of line. Um, you know what? Don't, oh, yeah, this is important. Uh, in the previous verse, before we got to 22, the word for distress, and um, I guess it'd be 21, is uh, a play on words because it actually has the same root as the letter, as the word amelic. So that's the reason, one of the reasons why Baldwin said that this is connected to Ziklag because it's okay. one of the few times that David's really going to have a connection with the Amalekites. And we've seen this from uh, the writer of Samuel before, where he'll take these root words and play with their different meanings. Sure. So sure. Um, anyway, but We'll go back to verse 22, and it's kind of a weird verse at the end, and there's been some discussion whether or not that was added later. It's possible. I mean, we, we've got editors in the Bible. Mm -hmm. We have to trust them as much as we trusted the original authors. It was preserved for us in this form. This is a very old form. We can't say when it was added. But what it really does, it reminds us that David's fate is the fate of Israel, that they're not separate. If David's not going to overcome and rise up as the leader, then Israel is never going to rise up as the leader of, of the world to present salvation to the world. David brings salvation to Israel. Israel's going to bring salvation to the world. Okay. They, they play together. And you can't have one be successful without the other be successful. 
And so if we accept Baldwin's theory that Psalms, this psalm in particular was written at Ziklag, then we can see how David is drawing on, his ex- on Moses' experience at Sinai. And you kind of get to see how David is comparing himself as being in the same circumstance, that true deliverance is going to take an act of God. It's no less miraculous for David to overcome than it was for Moses to overcome. Mm-hmm. And these battles really do belong to the Lord because only God can overcome these enemies. I mean, think about it, a comparison of size. You've got this you know, little ragtag group of Israelites coming out of Egypt going against these established nations. Mm-hmm. And now you've got David on a smaller scale going against you know, a little ragtag army going against established nations. And so it's this, this microcosm of Exodus being played out once again. And we're seeing that the, these themes picked up where David becomes the, this patriarchal leader, not just a king, but sometimes we forget that because we can say King David mm-hmm. and we don't say King Moses. <laughs> but the, the idea is that David is supposed to inhabit a very similar role as Moses that relies on God to supernaturally intervene, not because Moses deserved it, not because David deserved it, not because the Israelites at Sinai deserved it, and not because the nation now deserves it, but because God has made these covenant promises that go back to Abraham, they go back to Isaac, and they go back to Jacob. And this is what Israel hopes to claim as their own. And so it all revolves on God's character. So that's kind of what I had for this week. Well, I figured as much because you're out of notes. <laughs> I'm out of notes, so. yeah. So if you're watching on oh. YouTube, you just watch them <laughs> fall on the floor. <laughs> I need to get you a little table or something you can set them on. But... Do you think that would actually work for me? I don't know. <laughs> we, we can try it. <laughs> this is true. But, no, it's good stuff. Um, I think we had an interesting conversation. Went a little far afield there, but it's eh. what we do. So everyone out there, thanks for joining us. Um, we will be back next week. And... Uh, in the meantime, if you want to be part of the conversation, Raven Creek SC, RavenCreeksc.com. It's the website, Raven Creek SC on the social media. <laughs> and you think I'd know how to do this right by now. I've done it over a hundred times, but you know. We feel like we're bragging when we start listing this stuff. We don't do well with that. <laughs> no, that's, that's true. But uh, yeah, no, come be part of the conversation and uh, send us a message. Let us know if you agree, disagree. Rate and review us on iTunes. Review, yeah, rate and review YouTube. us on iTunes. Give us a, a like on uh, YouTube, hit the subscribe button, and uh, in the meantime, uh, we'll see you on the internet, I suppose. <laughs> Thanks. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes, or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.